Hey guys, it's Lauren Schmidt, Director of Ministry at Christ Centered Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. So in social services, I thought that at this point I'd run across most conditions, uh, most different kinds of diagnosis, but I was a bit surprised when I was preparing this week, I learned of a psychological condition that I hadn't heard of before. This condition is something called anhedonia, anhedonia. When I looked further into into this, WebMD uh, described anhedonia as the inability to feel pleasure. It's a common symptom of depression, as well as other mental health disorders. Most people understand what pleasure feels like. They expect certain things in life to make them happy, like maybe you enjoy riding your bike or uh, listening to the radio or the sounds of the ocean or holding someone's hand. But some people lose the ability to feel joy. The things that once made them content are no longer fun or enjoyable. That's anhedonia. There are two main types of anhedonia. The first one is social anhedonia. It's when you no longer want to spend time with or around other people because it just doesn't, you don't enjoy it anymore. You can't feel a sense of joy and pleasure from spending time with people. The second is physical anhedonia. It's when you don't enjoy physical sensations. A hug that uh, would normally be pleasing or satisfying now is, is empty. It makes you feel empty inside. You just don't get the same pleasure from a hug. Or it might even be a, a favorite food that you once had that now, for whatever reason, just tastes bland and you're not interested in eating it. Anhedonia makes relationships, including those with friends and family members, a struggle. With the reward of enjoyment gone, it's hard to get motivated to spend time with others. You might even turn down invitations and skip events like concerts or parties or even one-on-one get-togethers with people because you no longer believe that there's any benefit in taking part. That's anhedonia. Often when people are asked to describe anhedonia, they describe it as, I feel dead inside. I feel dead inside. Though many of us may never experience what's known as clinical anhedonia, we see that Scripture tells us that we all start out in a state of being dead inside. A spiritual anhedonia of sorts. Unlike clinical anhedonia, though, being dead inside is not something that can be effectively treated by uh, therapy or medication. The Apostle Paul tells us, though, that there is only one cure for spiritual death for being spiritually dead inside. And that is salvation. As we look tonight at the text, we we looked over the past couple of weeks at the blessings that we receive in our relationship with God, from God, from Jesus Christ, from the Holy Spirit. We looked last time at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, that they would have their eyes open, the, the eyes of their heart would be open, that they would have wisdom and understanding of everything that Christ had done with them and in them and for them. And then tonight, as we look at the text, we're going to see that he uh, is going to remind them about the power from, that they received at salvation. And, and ultimately what it means to be saved by God. Because I, I think sometimes when we use that term, saved, we don't always understand what that really truly means. Paul wanted the Ephesians to know exactly what being saved meant. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. From this text, we're going to answer the question, what does it mean to be saved? Now, as we look at the text, we just read it, we can see a very interesting logical thought flow for Paul. 
And Paul takes them from where they started to where they are, and essentially tells how we get there. And when we look at the text, what we see when we ask this question of what does it mean to be saved, or how can I be saved, we have to understand first that at one time, we were dead inside. We were dead inside. Much like when we talked about anhedonia just now, and that being a clinical condition, we all, pre-Christ, were dead inside spiritually. And Paul talks about that in the first three verses. We see that when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You once walked according to the world, according to Satan, and you lived out the passions of your mind and your flesh that were ultimately led to spiritual death. And when we talk about being dead inside, we see first and foremost that being dead inside means that we were spiritually dead, completely and totally spiritually dead. We essentially wanted nothing to do with God. And as he's describing in the first three verses what it means to be spiritually dead, he talks about being completely lost, separated from God, and not having any kind of communion or communication with him. In fact, the person that he describes, which is really all of us, pre our relationship with Jesus Christ, has no interest in doing anything for the Lord at all. Because as we see in those verses, the only thing that we were interested in pre-Christ was living out what seemed right in our minds and what seemed right in our bodies. Have you ever heard someone say to you, just do what feels right? Do what feels good? Do what's going to make you happy regardless of the outcome? That might sound wise, but it really isn't, as we can see from God's Word. And if you think back to some of those times that you might have listened to that advice and done what seemed right or done what felt right or done what felt good, if you really looked at it, that probably wasn't the best choice in the moment. Certainly not God's choice. But before we knew Jesus Christ as our Savior, that was our only choice. And he says that here in the text, because being spiritually dead inside means that we want nothing to do with God. And we see that we're spiritually dead because of those choices as well, because of the sin in our life. Because when we were born, we were born dead in our sin. We were born separated from God. We were born without any relationship with Him. And that's why, for a time, we lived for ourselves, with no other option for how to live. We were spiritually dead because of our sin, and ultimately we see that we were led around by things other than God, other things than God made our choices for us. Being dead inside means that we follow the leading of things other than God. And you see that here in the text as well. Verse 1, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, all those things that are contrary to God's word. Because of those, you were dead in them. You were born that way, and until Jesus Christ, you had no hope for anything else. And he goes on to describe how we lived following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what he does here is he paints a picture of the things that we followed around before we followed Jesus Christ. And these are all things that we all followed. And Paul describes them as the first thing that we followed, other than Jesus Christ, was we followed the world systems at the beginning of verse 2. He says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So you made decisions before Jesus Christ according to what the world tells you is the right thing to do. That advice of, do what feels good, do what feels right, do what makes you happy, 
even if it was something that God says is completely and totally wrong and is sin. You followed the system that the world has established for thinking, and you still hear those things today. That is something that when we don't know Jesus Christ, and the person that doesn't know Jesus Christ totally follows. They don't even realize that they're following it. Because Paul tells us also that they're spiritually blind in other places in Scripture. But when we don't follow Jesus Christ, we're following one of those three things, and the first is the system of the world. But not only the system of the world, we're also following the guy that put that system in place, Satan himself. And Paul elaborates that here in the text. He says, following the course of this world, in the second part of verse 2, following the prince of the power of air, or of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says, not only before you followed Christ were you following the world system, but you were also following the guy who instituted the world system, and that's Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And we had no other choice or recourse before Jesus Christ but to follow him. You're either following one or the other, ultimately, Jesus Christ or Satan. And Paul tells him, that's where you were. You were spiritually dead. You were dead in your sin. You were following the world. You were following Satan. But not just those two. He says there's a third thing that you were following. And that we see is in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And So we see there that we were making decisions not only according to the world system, we're making decisions not only according to what makes Satan happy, but we're also making decisions according to what ultimately makes us and our flesh happy. There's that whole just do what feels right thing. If it feels right, how can it be wrong? That's, that's what the world tells us. That's what our flesh tells us. And Paul says that's how we made decisions before Jesus Christ. And we had no other choice because we didn't know anything differently. And the worst part is, we didn't even know what we didn't know. Paul is telling the Ephesians to remember that. He says, hey, you guys, remember how you lived before Jesus Christ. Remember how you made your choices. Remember what your life revolved around. It revolved around a system that was anti-God. It revolved around a system that followed Satan. And it revolved around, ultimately, the desires and the things that feel good and feel right in our head and our heart. But ultimately as we see in most cases, if not all, are completely destructive and hurtful. So we see being dead inside means that we were spiritually dead. We didn't have hope before Jesus Christ. It means that we were following the leading of things in our lives other than God. And then he says that being dead inside means that we ultimately faced the wrath of God. Because without Jesus Christ and before Jesus Christ, we were an enemy of God. Paul tells us in other places in his epistles. But here in this text, he tells us that we were objects of wrath. So we see here, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There are people that will tell you that by virtue of just being alive, that you're a child of God. Unfortunately, Scripture tells us that that is not the case. Because what we see from the text here is that ultimately, when we're born, apart from God and Jesus Christ, we are instead a child of wrath, or rather an object of wrath, or rather one whom God is wrathful toward because of our sin. We're separated from Him. We're an enemy of His. We have no hope apart from 
what he shows us is our hope, and that is in Jesus Christ. So we see that being dead inside means that we're, we ultimately look forward to and face the wrath of God. And people who die in their sin, who die in this state, who die spiritually dead, who have a spiritual anhedonia, ultimately look forward to the wrath of God for eternity. And he wants the Ephesians to understand this and to remember this. Now, remember, we looked in the past weeks, he's speaking primarily to believers in this letter. So this isn't necessarily evangelistic in nature, because his audience are, are Christians. But he really wants them to know and understand their faith, what it means to be saved, what they came out of, and what he brought them to. And that's my encouragement to you first as we look at this text tonight in those first three verses. is If you can, think back to a time before you knew Jesus Christ as your Savior. I mean, maybe you were young. Maybe you accepted Christ at a young age, so you don't really fully remember what it was like to not know or accept God. But you certainly, I'm sure, can remember those times when even after knowing God, you were tempted to live for yourself. You were tempted to do what felt right according to your flesh because we don't lose our sin nature. We, the flesh doesn't stop trying to get our attention. So you certainly can probably remember decisions like that. So think back to what it's like to live without taking, if you know God, without taking God into account and living for yourself. That we can all remember, I'm sure, even as believers. And think back to the fact that before Jesus Christ, you didn't have any hope. And really, that should cause us all to pause and be thankful if we know Christ. That at one point, we were his enemy. We were an enemy of God, with no hope. Facing God's wrath for all of eternity. You know, I encourage you to sit with that tonight. Keep that in the back of your mind as we progress through the text. That we were all once dead. We were all spiritually dead at one time. But thank God we don't stay there. And that's what Paul continues with in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, this is where you guys were, but he says, hey, thank God you didn't stay there. And we see that in the next verse, in verses 4 through 7. Paul says all of that about being dead in our trespasses and sins and being separated following other things under the wrath of God. In verse 4 he says, but God, there's the hope, folks, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells the Ephesians, yeah, you were dead in your sin. You were hopelessly lost. You were following things other than God. You were looking down the barrel of the gun of God's wrath. And yet, but God stepped in. He intervened. He did some things. Primarily, he made us spiritually alive. So he said you were dead. But God made you spiritually alive. And when we talk about being spiritually alive... We see that we are spiritually alive by virtue of God alone. It was first because of his love. And we see that, but God being rich in mercy, 
And those words are somewhat interchangeable with the idea or concept of mercy and love there. They're very close in, uh, when it's translated. And actually, the Hebrew word, this is a Greek text, but when it's translated from uh, Greek into Hebrew, we see that there's that concept of hesed that I love so much. Because hesed in the Hebrew is a committed love that never fails. It's a love that transcends any love that we can truly understand as people. We can strive for it, but we can't attain it in the same way that God is able to love us with that covenant, faithful love. Because God never fails us in his love. He is that hesed love. And we see that demonstrated here in the text. God being rich in that love, that never failing, compassionate, committed, covenant love, made us alive. He took us when we were dead and made us alive. Alive together with Jesus Christ. So we get that, that picture and imagery of the resurrection when Jesus Christ rose from the grave on Sunday, on Easter Sunday when we celebrate it. And we, like him, are, are raised as well. We, we will experience a spiritual resurrection one day. We are alive in Jesus Christ spiritually. We still have the same flesh suit that we always have had, yet on the inside, we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's because of his love, his mercy, and his great love with which he has loved us. So we see that we're spiritually alive because of God's love, but also because of his grace. Because of his grace. In verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is God showing his favor to you and choosing you in spite of everything that you've ever done. We've all given God lots of reasons to reject us, if he so choose. But he doesn't. When we know him, he chooses us with favor that we don't deserve. Salvation is God choosing us in spite of our mess, in spite of the choices that we've made, when we trust him for our salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. And we talk about being spiritually alive. That's not something that we can do to earn that. And more about that in a minute. But we see that being spiritually alive means that we have to realize and we have to accept God's love, his great love, his head love, as well as his grace. That there's nothing that we can do to earn it or be good enough or right enough with him. It's only by his favor that we can be saved. So being spiritually alive... It means that we're alive because of his love and grace. It also means that we have something to look forward to. You see, back when we were spiritually dead, we didn't have any hope, right? What we were looking forward to was the wrath of God, and who's really looking forward to that? That sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? So we don't really have anything worth looking forward to when we were spiritually dead. But when God made us spiritually alive, we see that now we have something to look forward to couple of things, actually, here in the text. In verse 6, we see that we can look forward to, and we, we now have, when we know Christ, life in him on earth. Verse 6, and raised up with him. We were raised up with him, and we now walk in that spirit. We walk in life in a way that we didn't before. It's that inner resurrection that I just mentioned, and one that we will look forward to at the end, the bodily resurrection. But right now, it's spiritual in nature. And we're made alive in him, and we can have life in Christ now. We can walk in him, which is, again, something we're going to look more in detail at in a little bit. 
But we see here that that's what that means, that we can look forward to being spiritually alive. And we should remember that we are spiritually alive. This is something that Paul mentioned in the first couple of sections in chapter 1 and then now in chapter 2. We have something to look forward to in life in Christ on earth, but also we have something to look forward to forever in heaven. We have something that's going to take place later. So we see here, he raised us up with him and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're not only with him now and he is in us, but also we'll be with him forever in eternity. Spiritual life is not just a now thing, it is a forever thing. So we see being alive, being made alive, is something we can look forward to now and forever. We move from spiritual death, where we had no hope, and we were looking forward to the wrath of God, and now we're spiritually alive and can look forward to living the rest of our life with Jesus Christ in us and living through us. And one day, we can look forward to being seated with Him forever in heaven for eternity. That's powerful stuff. That's no hope to so much hope. And Paul wanted the Ephesians to remember that. And he tells them that ultimately they're going to be God's pride and joy. Verse 7. And we, as believers who know Jesus Christ, are God's pride and joy. Can you imagine knowing that God is proud of you? That part of the reason that he saved you was so that he could show others how awesome you are because of what he did in you, not because of anything you did, because of what he did in you. Many of us go through life having people look down on us and be ashamed of us, and, but to know that God, the creator of the universe, is proud of you, is proud of me, because we know him, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, so looking forward to the future, again, something else to look forward to, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when you get saved and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, God is going to show you off someday. He's going to show the world, essentially. Think about that. Think about God going, oh man, I'm really proud of him, her. I'm really proud of the person that accepted Christ as their Savior that is now one of my children. I mean, that so far exceeds even one of our own parents telling us that they're proud of us. It's the God of the universe looking upon us and, and, and showing us as a demonstration of his immeasurable riches and his grace and his kindness. That's amazing. That's more than just, oh yeah, you know, once I was going to hell and now I'm going to heaven. It's so much more than that. It's so much more powerful than that. You go from experiencing the wrath of God to being God's pride and joy. It's amazing. But as believers, sometimes we don't live like that, do we? People ask me, yeah, I'm a Christian. There's a lot of bad examples of us lately. Don't, don't say that too loud. It's something that we can be proud of and thankful for. That God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And that we have a relationship with him because he chose us. And that one day, we are going to be an example and picture to the entire creation of the love and kindness and mercy of God. And we should let that come out in our everyday life. Not in shame, but also not living like a jerk either. Because you can go too far with that. 
Christ lived in humility. He called people to repentance and to the kingdom. But at the same time, he didn't use his theology to beat people up and abuse them. So it's walking in humility, but walking in a sense of spiritual pride and joy, knowing that we are God's pride and joy. There's a security in that. We see that Paul tells us we were once dead inside, but now he's made us alive. And he doesn't stop there. He continues on to the Ephesians. And not only do we see what we were and where we are now, but we see how we got there. This is awesome stuff. Many of you are probably familiar with the following verses. So the rest is kind of like, oh, well, that's how it was set up. I see now. But the next verses, we see what it means to be saved. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see that we were dead inside, he made us alive, and he did so because we received his gifts. The only reason that we are able to believe and trust God is because he has given us the ability to do that as a gift. Even that is not of ourselves. The fact that you accepted Christ as your Savior, while it involved some of your choice, yes, it ultimately was God giving you the ability to do that as a gift. You weren't so great that you just made the right choice. It was your God calling through the Holy Spirit to your heart and you acting on that and choosing that with the Holy Spirit's leading and prompting. God reached out to you, not you to He. So we see that all of these things, grace, mercy, love, trust, all of those things are gifts from God. And we're only saved because of all of those gifts. And Paul makes some important distinctions here in the text where he develops this idea of work. Because as humans, we like to think that, like the Tower of Babel, that we can work hard enough and build high enough to get to him. And he says, nope, that is not the case at all. It's all because of me. And he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your doing. It is the gift of God. And he develops that idea of working. And we see that working come out in three different ways here. When we talk about receiving God's gifts, we see that salvation was not by anything that we did. It was not because of our works. It was not a result of works. Why? So we can't brag about it. We can't brag about being more spiritual than someone else. We can't brag about being closer to God than someone else. We can't brag about being saved when God, uh, someone else has not come to salvation yet. Because it wasn't anything that we did. Not a result of our works or anything good that we did. You can't be good enough or do good enough in order to be saved. It's only by God's grace and gift that you come to him. And we're, we're familiar with that. Like as, as, as Christians, because again, remember his audience is Christians. We've heard that, haven't we? We've heard it a lot. But there's more to it than that, because sometimes we stop there. So how does Paul develop this idea of working even further? Well, he starts with the fact that salvation is not anything we can work for. But then he comes back to this idea of work in verse 10. So he says, you, you can't be saved because of your good works. You can't work hard enough. Why? Because salvation in us is God's workmanship. So in other words, we can't do the work because God already did the work. The fact that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and are born again and are saved is because God did that work and salvation is that work that he did in you. So you can't earn it. 
You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be talented enough. You can't be rich enough. Because salvation has already been taken care of because God already did the work in that. It's that whole thing of Him taking us as humans and uniting the Holy Spirit with us in salvation. That's His workmanship. And then we're born again. He says, it's not a result of works so that no one can brag about it, no one can boast. For or because we are His workmanship and the Holy Spirit within us, created in Christ Jesus. And here's the third concept of work that we see in these verses. So he says, you can't work enough, or you can't work hard enough because God already did the work and he did the work so that you can do the work. Okay, how does that work? Well, let's look at the text. So we're his workmanship. He, he did this in us. Not only did he do this in us, but he did this through us. So as a Christian now, when you live, it's not actually you doing the good in your life so much as it is God doing the work through you. Because everything within you has changed. Your motives have changed. Your heart has changed. Your life has changed. You're alive now, whereas you were dead before. And all of that has changed. We see that here in the text. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not necessarily just to do them on our own and our own strength, because we can't. But, which God prepared beforehand. So God already knew and already knows before he even chooses you for salvation, his plans that he has for you. And so really it's a situation where he is then working through you once you come to Jesus Christ. He is living through you. Yes, I mean, you're still mechanically part of the process, but you have a completely new and different changed heart. God is doing the work through you because he's prepared it ahead of time. How do we know this? That it's not just us going and doing it. Well, we see that in the last part of this verse, that we should walk in them. In the original language, it gives us this idea of essentially being like a conduit for the Spirit of God to move and work and act through us. As we're walking, God does the work in us and through us. And that's what we're called to do. We're not called to clean up our lives. Even as Christians, we're not called to do everything on our own and clean up our lives and, and do a spiritual checklist. Instead, we're to be used by God and allow Him to work through us by walking with Him in relationship. And when you walk with God, when you, when you listen to the Holy Spirit's leading and you live for Jesus Christ, those decisions become much easier in life. Sometimes it's still hard because the flesh is still alive, as we talked about. But because of the power of the Spirit, we can choose to live differently. We can choose to let the Holy Spirit make our decisions rather than our flesh. We don't have to follow the leading of the world system, the leading of Satan, or the leading of the flesh. Instead, we can follow the leading of the Spirit. And he wants the Ephesians to understand this. He wants them to understand that salvation was something that God did in them. And it's also something that God does through them. And it's not because, again, they're talented or skilled or rich or powerful or any of that. They're just submitted to the Spirit. And the Spirit is working through them as they walk in Him. We're saved to let God live through us. And He wants them to understand that because in the next several chapters, in 4, 5, and 6, those are going to be all about living according to the Spirit. 
So we see that we were once dead inside, that God has made us alive, and he did so because we received his gifts. We couldn't work for him, we couldn't earn him, but God chose us and loved us in his mercy and grace, and that when we trust him, we are made alive and born again. We are saved. So how do we live this out? What do we do with this text? What were the Ephesians going to do with this text? Well, we see that being saved means we were dead, we're alive, and we've received the gifts of love, mercy, grace, and trust. The first thing we need to do is this. Remember where you were before Christ, but thank God for where you are, if you know him. We can all do that. And even if you can't remember before, you can think about where you would be if you didn't have him. Remember where you were, but thank God for where you are now, if you know him personally. The second is this. If you don't know him personally, if you've never trusted him for salvation, if you've been trying to do it your own way and be good enough to get into heaven, tonight is the night, now is the time to change that. Because you'll never be good enough. You'll never do good enough. It's only by God's love and grace and mercy and trust. Choose to trust Christ to be saved tonight. If you haven't done so already. Choose to trust. That's what faith is. I intentionally didn't use the word faith as I preached tonight. Even though it's there. Because faith it really means trust. And I think that's a concept we can more get our brains around. We know exactly what it means to trust something. Sometimes faith we struggle with a little bit. But we're called to trust. That's what faith is here. Trust Christ to be saved if you haven't done so already. And tonight, after I pray, as we wrap up, I will remain up here for anyone. If you have not made that decision yet to trust Christ, to talk with you from the scriptures about what it means to be saved, to go from being dead to being alive because of God's grace. The last is this. The last is this. If you know Christ, if you've trusted him, make a commitment tonight. Make a commitment right now, if you're listening to this at another time. Make a commitment to let God do his works through you as you walk through life. Stop trying to be a well-behaved Christian. Stop trying to just do good enough to feel good about yourself and make God happy with you. We saw from the text that God already sees you as his pride and joy. So you don't have to earn his favor anymore. You already have it if you know him. But instead, tell God tonight, today, right now, whenever you're listening or watching, make a commitment to let God work through you. To, to live through you as you live life according to his word and according to his spirit leading you. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this text that reminds us of the complexity and simplicity of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for, for those that you've called to yourself to be saved. Lord, I also pray tonight for those who have not yet trusted you, that they would. That they would see that they're facing your wrath, and that they can't do good enough to try to get your favor. That they can only do it if they trust you. And I pray that they would, God. 
they would have the courage through the Holy Spirit to reach out to one of us here to let us know the decision that they've made or to ask any questions that they might have. And Lord, I pray that as believers and as a church, that we would make a commitment to let you live through us, to let your spirit work out through us as we live each and every day seeking to serve you. That's in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray tonight. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.